Ron DeSantis is Ron DeSantis might be more fascist than Donald Trump and just a little bit smarter. It's not necessarily, oh, we're going to have a civil war in soon, but I'm just saying, if you look at that statistic there, it shows just because the civil war is, is over doesn't mean that animosity just goes away or you automatically were like, yeah, we were wrong. Hey, I'm so sorry. Yeah, we were wrong. This is the Snap Up, where each week Tim Costello and Scott Barzilla help you digest their favorite stories from the world of sports and politics. The, the history books have gotten away with a lot of the bad things that we've done as society because they were non-Christian nations. And just like the dreaded Snap Book, don't be surprised when we start bringing you over to the left side of the fairway. Back in the good old days, you could have gotten a job doing just about anything if you sat there and said, I have a college degree. But now, that's not the case. So we're going to sit there, we're going to back on these kids, we're going to sit there and say, you're going to owe, you know, thousands of dollars of debt. And in many cases, some of them pay for maybe twenty or $30,000 they borrow. They might pay two or three hundred thousand dollars in their lifetime with all the competitive interest. And now here are your hackers of the week: Tim Costello and Scott Barzilla. Hey, welcome back into another edition of the Snap Hook. Tim Costello joined, as always, with Scott Barzilla. Uh, this is a good week, Tim, and uh, and just to let a, a few of y'all inside, you know, we plan these things, you know, a week out, and uh, Tim had an issue that was really important to him, and I think a, a, an area of history that he likes to study, so I'm going to let him lead off this week and uh, set everything up. So, essentially, Scott, I, as I reached out to you, to me, the, the idea of moral panics uh, is something that has been around in America since, since the beginning, since colonization. Um, you're a teacher, you've been through high school in Texas. Uh, I'm sure you were taught the, the crucible, right? In high school, the, the Salem witch trials, you know, everything that happened there. And when, when we learned about that, I, I was always under the impression it was taught to us as a, um, a warning, you know, a a a sense of war a sense of warning for this is what happens when when you know all this fake news or lies get churned up and everybody just goes along with it. This is the dangers of it. And since then, we haven't really necessarily taken that advice. You know, I, I do think that we've studied them and you know, I think tonight you and I were going to look at a few different ones that have happened. But as we continue to go through these, I think one of the one of the themes that we're gonna we're gonna see is is that we've gotten better at them, and essentially that's what's really scary to me right now as, as we get into this. But um, you know, the idea that we have perfected the moral panic into getting what we want, you know, and that's and that's a scary, scary thought that. Um, you know, society can be swayed in such a way. And not only did I read the crucible, uh, in high school, Tim, um, I, I work with, you know, English classes. And so for years I was in English three and English three is American literature for those who don't know here, at least in the state of Texas. 
And so I, I've done the crucible probably uh, over the course of, I would say, at least, you know, five or six years. And then, you know, if you're in three or four classes, that's, you know, three or four times a year. Uh, and really what we've gotten better at in terms of education is we've linked together U.S. history and English three. And so we've paired those things together. And uh, just to give you all a little bit of a backstory for those of y'all who you know, m- might have slept through uh, The Crucible back in high school or, you know, just may not be familiar with it. It was written by a man named Arthur Miller, uh, who was intimately involved in the Red Scare. He, his name came up uh, in the Un-American uh, Committee that uh, that we all know uh, was, was a huge deal in the 1950s. And so he wrote The Crucible as a kind of a cautionary tale you know, what happens when these panics come up and, and scapegoating uh, starts happening. And so, you know, that he, he took, you know, historical facts and he kind of, you know, twisted them a little bit to kind of include, um, you know, some elements, you know, from his own life. Um, like the really big deal is, you know, he, uh, the two main characters, uh, Abigail Williams and, of course, John Proctor was supposedly dating where if you look at the actual historical documents, I think she was 11 and he was in his 50s or 60s. So that wasn't, you know, really anything that happened. But he welded it into a story to warn about the problems with the Red Scare, which is another one of our moral panics, which uh, we've had in our history. And so that's linking together the Salem Witch Trials, which might have been the first truly American moral panic. Um, at least in a major sense. And then, of course, you know, the 1950s. Um, we, would, we could point out that there have been moral panics throughout history uh, in different locations. It's not something that's purely American. Uh, and it's something that's, you know, not purely American now. We see moral panics, you know, that happen, you know, particularly in Europe and, and other places like that. Um, but it's definitely an interesting uh, example you brought up just right off the bat. More panics really are you're right. It's something that's not just strictly American. It's if you study the course of human history, there are distinct more more panics throughout the period of time, and it's just it really depends on how well history was documented in that area in that region uh, with what we know about it, right? Because what we do know is that when society happens, when a large group of people happen, these events are going to occur that are going to change the way that. We perceive things, whether it was 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, today, there are going to be things that happen and we go, hmm, maybe we should change how we're doing things to prevent how this event occurred or to make sure it doesn't happen again. I think that's pretty reasonable. That's a a pretty reasonable way to live life. But what happens is we, as a society, don't always play with our cards all on the table. You know, not everybody wants to admit that they're they're going into this with a maybe a little bit of a selfish thought process or maybe they want to make some money or gain power or influence from this event that happened this what was a tragic event now let's find a way to use it for my gain and that's kind of to me Scott that's where the the moral panics begin to happen and and based on some of the study that's been done there's typically five steps or phases, right? When you have a moral panic, there's going to be some sort of event that causes social anxiety. That's going to, you know, that's going to be your concern, whether it be, um, you know, gang violence or, as we mentioned, you know, 
the Salem witch trials. There was, you know, um, something has to start the start the process, right? There's an original bang, um, and that typically is real, right? There really is something that happened that caused the concern of society. Our attention is now focused on this issue. Uh, when it's 1690, that's a town because that's as big as the attention span is. When it's 2023, it's the internet because that's how big the attention span is. Uh, then there's going to be hostility, which is, you know, it's going to be a subculture is seen as folk devils or someone who's going to be looked upon negatively, whether that be immigrants, whether that be witches, whether that be gay men during the AIDS epidemic, whether that be teachers who are indoctrinating students. There are someone that we can we can vilify and we can say, you know, those people are the problem. There's someone that we can point to and say, if we just get rid of this will have our good natured society back again. Then there's going to be a consensus or, you know, a fear of this subculture becomes the dominant narrative in the media and social discussion. So essentially by creating the social pan panic and continuing to talk about it and seeing it on the media. Now we're in what Scott talked about in, in, in another show as a silo where all we're seeing is this, this thing that's being talked about every time we turn on the TV, all we're seeing is gang violence. All we're seeing is crack on the streets. All we're seeing is gay people dying of AIDS. All that we see because we only stay tuned in our silo and we can we continue, pardon me, to create this self-sustaining media stream to push the narrative just that little bit farther. Then we're going to see disproportionality. Um, we're going to see things that aren't true. This is where... It's the, the threat is exaggerated for the purpose of the media, right? That's where we, we look at the, the crack epidemic, the crack, the crack babies, for example, or, or again, gang violence, um, where there originally is, a, a, sure, there's an issue there. Um, but we've now disproportionality, disproportionately, pardon me, portrayed it, and now it doesn't quite look right. Uh, and then finally, volatility, which is a here's where the more panic emerges and then oftenly does disappear quickly because we live in such a quick news cycle will be swayed another direction. Um, but those are kind of the five steps that typically you'll see arcing towards a, a, a moral panic. Um, and I think as we've kind of seen, it's essentially if you watch Fox News, right, there's a different panic every single week. They throw one out there. And let's see what sticks. Right. Um, I want to attack this really from a couple of different angles. Um, the first one is that, like, if we use the uh, the Salem witch trials, because hopefully that'll get you know fewer people pissed off because we're talking you know going on five hundred years ago, right? You know, four hundred years ago, really. There are two groups of people. There are the people who truly believe the panic, and then there are the people who are using the panic for their own means. So if we go back to the Salem Witch Trials, there are people who really believe there were witches in Salem. They honest to God believe it. They're, you know, they're religious fanatics. They, you know, they believe this stuff. Then there are the other ones who know exactly what they're doing, and they're using it for their own benefit. And what they noticed is that the people who were accused of witchcraft seemed to be the people that had land that they wanted. And what, what happened is, is that if you 
said you were a witch, if you have confessed to witchcraft, they would save your life, but you'd forfeit your land. But forfeit the land, well, who gets the land? Yeah, well, let's kind of connect the dots there. Um, and of course, if you said you weren't a witch, then you get hung or you get, you know, or stone, you get, you get whatever, you know, the, the punishment was back in the day. But one of the things in, 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 you know, in a past episode, you know, we talked about the fact that, uh, that I'm Italian, Tim is Irish. Now think about your Catholic populations, your, 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 all of your ethnic groups that are Catholic. They are all your stereotypical drinkers. Think about it. I mean, there's the, uh, you look at the, you know, the Irish Catholic, you know, you know, supposedly drunk. I mean, that's what, you know, St. Patrick's Day, green beer. I mean, it's all this, it's all this uh, stuff is about. It's coming up. Um, but Italians are, you know, famous for drinking, you know, um, Hispanic people are famous for drinking. But America is really the only country I can think of where it's predominantly Protestant. And when you look at the uh, predominant culture, in a predominant culture, if it could be anything American, it stems from that Puritan base. And so what were the Puritans for? The Puritans were for anything that is pleasurable is bad. So drinking, dancing, premarital sex, anything that might be entertaining. And so what ends up stemming from that uh, because you, know, you look at, you know, you can look at any phase of, of our lives. You can talk about, you know, uh, drugs, you can talk about alcohol, you can talk about tobacco, you can talk about even diets. I mean, people want to go on these starvation diets. Do they work? No, because the thing is, is that, you know, people are going to crave that which they, that which they don't have. Now, if they learned how to do it in moderation, then they probably would get by. Now, here's a trivia question for everybody. Do you know the United States is second in the world in the rate of alcoholism? I don't know if you if you knew that, Tim. No, I, I, I didn't. Now, this is not in total alcohol consumed. This is not alcohol consumed per capita. This is the rate of alcoholism. This is the rate of people who are addicted to alcohol. Now, yeah, I won't, I'll let you guess as the country that would be number one. Addicted to alcohol? Yeah. Uh, I guess England, I guess, would be my guess. Uh, it would be a good guess, but it would not be correct. Um, the actual correct answer is Russia. Uh, they, uh, there are more people who are alcoholics in Russia. I mean, you know, the joke how is, is how, I can be curious what do they define as addicted to? I guess my thought would be Russian people wouldn't want to admit that they have alcoholism, but I don't know. It's an interesting, interesting thought process there. Yeah, it, it is an interesting thought process. And I, and I do wonder the same thing because I wonder, you know, cause it's a lot of times like, you know, in the past few years, they reported that Houston was the fattest city in the, in the United States. And you're like, are you just dumping 5 million people on a scale? I mean, what are we doing? Um, they go they, by what, BMI, which is a terrible statistic to well, begin, what, begin with. What they did was they went by restaurants per capita. Mm. And which is, you know, the problem there is that, you know, Houston also has a very active, um, you know, exercise community. You know, we have, you know, lots of, you know, running groups. You have lots of, you know, people who like to go out and exercise and walk a lot, you know, along Memorial Park or, you know, something along those lines. So, you know, is Houston literally the fattest city? I, I really don't know. But 
the point that that brings up, though, is that obviously we're talking about people who are reporting that they are addicted to alcohol. People in, you know, particularly I would say in France, but, you know, in most Western European countries, we're introducing children at earlier ages to alcohol. They're drinking, you know, little, little bits with dinner and meals. And the thing is, is that public drunkenness is seen as a scourge in those other countries. I mean, you are, you are the lowest of the low if you are you know, actually publicly intoxicated. Whereas in the United States, I mean, you think about how many, you know, people who are binge drinking. I mean, that, that, you know, that's really a thing. Now, if we extend this out, what we're talking about here is from a puritanical standpoint, people are told drinking is evil. Enjoying certain kinds of foods are evil. Enjoying, you know, going dancing is, is, is evil. When I was in college in the 90s, Baylor had their first school dance ever in the 90s, if you can imagine, um, because they're, you know, they're affiliated with the Baptist church. And there's always a joke. You know, how do you keep a Baptist from drinking your beer? Now, you know the answer to this one. I don't think I do. You invite a second Baptist. There you go. So... That's, you know, when I look at this issue of moral panics and, and from an American perspective, and, and these happen around the world, but I, I see it from a standpoint of a puritanical standpoint that all these things that have been labeled as evil, that people should be enjoying in moderation. Because, you know, the Bible doesn't say don't drink. The Bible says, you know, basically don't drink to excess. And so... People have, you know, taken that to mean, oh, you should never, ever drink, ever. It's like, no. You know, a little bit is healthy. It's like having a little bit of ice cream is healthy. If you love ice cream, eat ice cream. If you love cake, eat cake. Just don't eat the whole cake or the whole carton of ice cream. And you should be okay. And I think, too, the the problem we'll see here, and especially it's, I think it's very prevalent in America and very prevalent lately is the inability to mind your own business. The, the majority, I think, of moral panics are, and I think, again, this comes to here lately, is I don't like it, so nobody else should have it too. You know, that, to me, that is what a lot of these moral panics are. And as we, as we kind of get on and, and, and look at some of the ones that have happened, right, like... Um, to me, that one that really drives me crazy was the Red Scare, right? We were, we were so scared of the idea of communism. And, and this is one that, as you look at it through American history, it was clearly one, you know, basically a, a, a few very wealthy individuals who did not want to lose their investment, lose their capital to state-owned uh, utilities where the people in the state have operation and and monetary control and you're able to fund this trail of journalists you're able to fund the stories you're able to fund the movies and the books and the novels and the television shows and the radio shows and the war against communism and to the point where the united states congress you know some of the these people made their bones on the war against communism and we went we went to proxy wars to make sure communism didn't spread. And in that process, you know, people made 
fortunes. People made fortunes fighting the war on communism, whether it was the countries that helped build the planes or the bullets or whatever it was that the United States Army wanted to throw at Vietnam or Cambodia or Laos or whatever country they wanted to bomb. Uh, but at the same time, what's going on here in America, right? It was a way to turn your attention against some of the social anxieties that were happening, some of the growing needs that this country had at and in the 1960s and 50s, where there were some large portions of the population that really should have been heard from, but instead, a very few people couldn't mind their own business and couldn't let society play out the way it wanted to play out, and they based and they self-induced a moral panic by funding the constant talk about the fight against communism. They manufactured a fight against communism. And I want to augment a point that Tim made earlier, um, particularly like when you're looking at Joseph McCarthy, who's obviously you know the central figure behind the Red Scare. The most successful moral panics that they are, that people are able to produce are whenever we can we can come up with something that people can't define. You ask you know, somebody what communism was back in the 1950s, they, they, they probably couldn't tell you. So we're going to let somebody else tell you. And, and, and this also you know, kind of you know, reinforces the point I made earlier where we had two groups of people. We had people who legitimately are afraid of communism. And, and there are elements to communism that certainly we should be wary about. But then there are the people who are, know exactly what they're doing. Joseph McCarthy knew exactly what he was doing. And and he knew that he was full of shit. But, you know, he went through it anyway because it was giving him power. It was giving him prestige. It was giving him, you know, probably uh, finances that, you know, we don't really know about. And we can draw a direct, a direct line to moral panics of today, you know, which we're obviously going to get to, you know. But right now, I mean, you can hear Ron DeSantis in the background complaining about woke, you know, woke. What does woke mean? Can we define woke? And I guarantee you that the people who are most concerned about woke are the people who are least equipped to define it. They can't tell you what it is. And so there have been moral panics around things that have been concrete, like, you know, prohibition was obviously a, a pretty famous moral panic. Well, that's something that's pretty concrete. We know we're banning alcohol. We know what we're doing. But the ones who are successful are the ones that can bring up something, socialism or, you know, uh, sexual identity, wokeness, uh, gender, you know, affirming. They, they don't know what this stuff is. And so you tell them about it. And it's like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. But they can't tell you anything about it. And, you know, and least of all the people who are, you know, bringing this to you, they're not going to define it for you. Tucker Carlson's not going to define it. Sean Hannity's not going to define it. Ron DeSantis is certainly not going to define woke for you, but he is surely going to make you afraid of it. And he is going to be the one that reaps the benefits from that. Do you know who Roy Cohen was? Absolutely. I think... And I hate that he's responsible for anything because he was such a giant dirtbag. But I, I think Roy Cohen 
is really kind of where you see the evolution of the moral panic. I think he was so good at what he did as a political fixer and an instigator. And I think he kind of learned how to use the moral panic in a way to a, a politician's advantage that had not really been done before. I think until that point, there were financial gains. There were societal moral panics that happened, like you said, with with prohibition, right, where, where people literally thought America had a problem with alcohol. And, and to some extent, we, we did have some issues with alcohol before prohibition. It was pretty common to, to stop off at the tavern on the way to work for breakfast and a shot on the way. I mean, we, we drank at a much higher rate than we do today. But that being said, a, a lot of the moral panics were for personal gain or you know, societal issues that happened. I, once Roy Cohn got involved with McCarthy uh, during the, the Red Scare, where he was able to kind of help, quote unquote, root out subversives. And you, you saw the heights that McCarthy rose to on a national level before eventually, um, you know, he had an ax buried in him essentially politically and, and, and Dwight D. Eisenhower danced on his grave. But at the same time, while he was going and while he was doing that, Eisenhower was too scared to step up and to do anything. He only said anything once once McCarthy was already dead, basically. So I think Cohen kind of saw that. He used that. And as a fixer, you know, his his eventual, um, you know, pretty, uh, I don't know, um, counterpart or, you know, his, his legacy, quote unquote, Roger Stone, someone else who continues to throw those false narratives out there. These guys saw that it works for their candidates, right? If you can, prior to an election cycle, get people stirred up about something, then come out and have your candidate talk about that something that again, no one can define, no one knows what it is, but the people are talking about it. Now I'm talking about it. And I'm your guy to take care of that issue that I created in a back room six months ago. And and, and people here locally, there I really think CRT is one that we we've talked out before. But when you look at the numbers of of we'll call them QAnon or or far right or CRT believing people that ran and won. Um, in the United States of America is sad and it's scary because they were able to stir up a panic about something that, again, is an elite level college class that is in no way being taught in any high school classroom because no high school, there's maybe 25 high school teachers in, in the state of Texas that have taken that class and are, are ready to, to, accurately give that discussion and that's above their pay grade at the end of the day they're not dealing with that with high school kids so you had this whole issue created now you got a bunch of panic about crt everybody steers into it and you've got a whole list of people that ran and won elections based off of the moral panic and so i it's crazy that i am giving him credit because he's such a terrible human being but it really to me changed with roy cohen and what he saw and was able to do with Senator McCarthy and I think other political fixers and other pro, uh, campaign managers, so to speak, um, kind of stole that model and ran with it a little bit. Yeah. Speaking of those people, you, 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 when you mentioned Roy Cohen, um, you know, later on, you can draw the line to, you know, to Atwater. Uh, you can draw the line to Karl Rove. 
and so you know these are people who kind of you know and you obviously you mentioned i mean roy cohn great personal friend with the reagans you know yeah, he, uh, uh, he's he's very well connected in the political community he just never ran himself because he uh was basically outwardly gay even though he was helping root gay people out of the government. If you don't know anything about Roy Cohen to our listeners, like unbelievable dirtbag, but unbelievably fascinating human being. And, and um, you should definitely look into researching him, but he has such political time. When you start to see some of the ones that happened in the eighties, Scott, that's why I really feel like he's someone who had a lot to do with the, the evolution of how these things were used. Right. And, and, and a couple of things that, you know, came to my mind uh, as you were talking there. Um, the first one is when you're talking about CRT, this is a prime example of people who are worried about, you know, something they don't understand. And there are people who are legitimately worried about it. And I don't know that I can even get mad at them necessarily. Um, I just, you know, I, I get mad at how uninformed people are, but I, I can't get mad at people who are genuinely worried about something. You know, the ones who get make me mad is, and, and we were, uh, I, we were at the, uh, the surgical center this morning and I, I don't have, I I've been streaming news for years. And so we're watching channel 13 news, um, really, you know, for the first time in a long time. And they mentioned that Greg Abbott is ending diversity hiring at the universities. And I was sitting there saying, geez, do you think you might want to phrase that differently? And I, cause I think what he's, he's thinking is, is that he's ending, you know, affirmative action. And, but what it sounds like is, no, we're just going to be hiring white people from now on. And the thing is, is that we can't come out and say, all this, you know, diversity stuff is BS. So what we're going to do is we're going to make up something like CRT. And and the one that historically that gets me, because you, you talked about the Red Scare, the one that always gets me is the drug war. And the drug war really uh, started up in the, in the late 60s and early 70s. Uh, kind of a Nixon thing, but, you know, it, it was, and, and really what you're looking at is you're looking at, did we have a drug problem? Sure. We have too many people who are addicted to drugs, but if you if you extend that outwards, more people in this country are addicted to opioids than any other drug. I mean, let, let's be honest. I mean, especially when you take alcohol out, when you take tobacco out, and you, you're looking at your you know hardcore illegal drugs, there are more people addicted to opioids. Are we taking those people? Are we throwing them in jail for twenty or thirty years? No, we're not doing that. What we're doing is we're going out to the people who get caught with crack, uh, you know, people who maybe get caught with heroin and, 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 and drugs like that. And so how we talk to our children about drugs, how we, you know, look at drugs and how we explain to them why drugs are bad. This is very, very, very important because if we do like, you know, and I don't know if you ever watched this, but I remember there was a film back in, I think, the 50s called Reefer Madness. Oh, absolutely. Where, I've seen Reefer Madness, but more because it's hilarious than as a don't do drugs type thought process. It is, you know, it is now to us. I mean, it, 
And and they would when you watch South Park, they would always make fun of those fifties videos because like they would sit there and talk about how, you know, if a, a lava flow was coming, if you just cover yourself up with a blanket, the, the lava will flow over you and will get you know. It, it is kind of a similar kind of deal, but the whole thing is, why was the war of drugs started? Is it because we really want to get rid of drugs, or? Is it a way to control certain things? And so look at who, you know, and when you're looking at the numbers, and of course this is what CRT kind of gets at, which is why we have this whole connected web, who's getting arrested and who's getting sent to jail for drugs? And who are we maybe going with a diversion, you know, maybe going with probation, maybe sending them to a rehab? Who are we giving that to? Uh, And you'll notice that the people who get probation, the people that get to go to rehab kind of all look the same. And the people that go to prison, they all kind of look the same. And when we extend that outward, we know that in certain states like Florida, for instance, it's nearly impossible for a person convicted of a felony to vote, even after they're released from prison. So we can extend this outward and show how we're going to use a moral panic in order to get something that we want that we couldn't get through legitimate means. Like there's no way you could go out there and say, you know what, we don't want black people to vote. I mean, nobody is going to give you the time of day if you actually say that. Nobody's going to sit there and go, um, yeah, you know, we want to we want to ruin you know this population's life because we we we're scared of them and we think they commit core crimes, so we're just going to preemptively throw them in jail. No, nobody's going for that. So what we're going to do is we're going to trump up an overarching fear that we can fold everything into, and that's how people get controlled. And so the, what you want to look for is you want to look for those people who are not really true believers of the panic, but people who are more than ready to use the panic for their own means and for their own benefits. And and I'm glad you brought that up too, in general, when you got to what I think are some of the effects of these moral panics, right? You have the users, obviously, who are going to take the, the mantle and fight on the cause of drug war, CRT, um, you know, whatever you'd like to look at. But what really happens is there's typically an unfair crackdown. There's typically some sort of unfair law, some sort of unjust reaction. And you you mentioned the war on drugs, right? And that's that's a great one to bring up in this as we talk about how you can use a moral panic to your advantage. You know, we know for a fact that during the Reagan administration, they traded uh, weapons uh, for drugs. We know for a fact that the CIA brought drugs into the United States of America, sold it, took the money, gave it to the conscious. Like we know that that exists, that that happened. And so what you were able to do is you were able to get this drug into the street that's ugly. Right. You mentioned the opioid pandemic and how terrible that is because it is. But 
the reason it wasn't talked about for a long time is because people took those painkillers in their own home, right? They got them from their doctor. They were able to hide that crack was out in the streets and it was distributed in the, in, in the worst underserved, underdeveloped parts of, of cities where it was obvious and violence flew, violence flood, uh, flooded, pardon me, violence flooded the cities around them. And obviously something had to be done, right? You can't have shootings in the streets, but look at the, the over-proportionate reaction. Mandatory minimums come out of that. We get overinflated police budgets out of that. And we get people who made their entire careers politically off of um, that time period and the war on drugs. And so it, I mean, it, it changed the democratic party fundamentally as, you know, Clinton continually signed on with mandatory minimums and um, even some of some people in the, Second Amendment people should be upset because it led to, to banning of certain types of weapons at that point, right? That's when you start to get assault weapon uh, weaponry banned. Um, all from that. And so all because they wanted to get the guns off the streets, the people off the streets. I think you made a great point. How can we eliminate some voting block? Well, you know who can't vote? Convicted felons. Convalents can't vote. We need to make sure that these, these drugs are Schedule 1 narcotics. Oh, automatically it's a it's a felony. Okay, boom. Now you've, as you said, you've decimated an entire generation. Um, you've taken away a large portion of voting rights and maybe some areas. Typically, big cities go blue, right? So now in these big cities, people who may have voted blue don't want to vote for you anymore. And so it's just become a, that was that was one that was used. And, and the fallout from that is, as I mentioned, mandatory minimums where you've got people going, 10 times sentences as the same type of drug crack cocaine gets you sentenced more than powder cocaine does because we determined that there was a crack problem we needed to solve the crack problem you you get people who made their way all the way up from assistant da to judge who have never really had to try an actual case because of mandatory minimums they had a great success record they never lost any cases and all of a sudden you've got people who are in position as judges who don't really know what they're doing and don't really have compassion for the process and the judicial system. So it, it was something that they caused. I mean, the United States caused this. The CIA brought these drugs into the United States. They put them where they wanted to put them. And then they were able to go tack it because they knew that these drugs were there. How? They gave it to them. And so it's, it's a self-sustained moral panic in that scenario where the fallout is exactly what they were looking for. They got everything they wanted out of that. And you mentioned, look, you know, it's there's the two type of people, those who are actually scared about it. Yeah, I mean, if you lived in in Baltimore, if you lived in in Detroit, if in Chicago, and some of the places where, you know, in New York, where the crack cocaine trade was really violent, like, I get it. You would be scared about that. It would be really scary. But you were also able to get people in – who knows where Kansas worried about it? And you were able to get someone in in Houston, Texas worried about what was going on up there. And you were able to whip up a whole country. And, it, you know, we need more police on the streets. We need better armed police. We need these weapons. We need tanks to bust up these crack houses. And all those people benefited from it. And it was from something that, at the end of the day, I'm not going to say it wasn't a problem, 
but it was a self-manufactured problem um, that everybody got what they wanted, except the people who got caught up in it. Yeah, and, and it really, gosh, I mean, if we really wanted to do a deep dive just in, in the drug war period, because, I mean, you're talking, number one, you know, you're, you're talking about foreign policy, but just, you know, what do we do with, you know, nations like Colombia, Afghanistan, where their chief crop are drugs? I mean, that's, that's, what, that's, you know, that's where they make their money. And so, like, if we're going to sit there, if we want to destroy the poppy fields, for instance, in Afghanistan, man, you want to find a way to make sure the Taliban's going to be in control? That's how you do that. You know, Colombia, if you want to, you know, destroy all the, you know, the cocaine fields and all the cocoa, you know. But, you know, to, to prove that this is manufactured, you know, let's think about this. What drugs kill more Americans? It's alcohol and it's tobacco by a long shot. And opioids and heroin, too. When you, those ODs, right? When people switch from pain kills, can't get it, then to an OD on heroin. Right. Well, if we take our heroin out, but if we include those pills in, you're talking about three pills that are legal. They're three drugs, legal, alcohol, tobacco, opioids. Okay. And, and how many people have died from smoking marijuana? I, I, uh, before, before the cartridges came around the, in the history of the world, no one ever died from marijuana, but the, when people started making bad cards, a few did, but I mean, still you got less than a hundred well, people probably ever that have died from marijuana. I'll tell a story though. And, and uh, my chemistry lab partner, and this is why, you know, to me, the drug war is so crazy. Uh, my chemistry lab partner in high school, he missed about a month of school. And what ended up happening is he ended up buying a joint from a dealer who laced it with a drug called PCP. And so he tried and almost succeeded in ripping his eyelids off. And so when he came back to school, you could tell he just couldn't quite close his eyes all the way. And, and that's where he was. And, and, I, and I chuckle now, but it, it's tragic when if you were to legalize it, you could go into Walgreens. You could buy a diluted version of it that would be, you know, sponsored by the government. So, you know, the government would be stipulating to its purity, would be stipulating to its safety, and the government could tax. You think about all these things. I mean, I, um, I, I never smoked cigarettes, but I kind of, you know, have checked in every now and then, you know, on, on the price of gas, you know, every time, uh, price of cigarettes when you go into the grocery store. And I think I see now most of them are over $8 a pack. You know, when I was a kid, it was maybe like 2 or $3 a pack. When my parents were kids, my parents were going to college, they were giving them away, giving them away for free because it was a study aid. You could stay up and study if you smoked a uh, cigarette. And so, but now the government's making all this money off of it. So, you know, you're, one of the things you're wondering is like, gee, why are we making money off of this one that's actually killing more people? But this one is the scourge and this one's illegal. We can't allow this. You, you know, stop and think about it. 
ask our listeners to stop and think about that. Cause I, I know Tim knows the answer. Cause you know, if you, if you've ever thought about this, you know, the answer to that question, but why are certain drugs okay? And certain drugs are not okay. That, I mean, that's really the question. Scott, I'm going to guess, have you, have you ever been to, we'll call it a legal state that, that has a dispensary? I've been to them. Yes. I've, I, I, I do not, uh, enjoy marijuana. I have I've never had the pleasure. So just, you know, having walked in and looked around essentially, um, they, they basically, that's exactly what you're describing, right? Somewhere you can go in and maybe get something a little bit weaker, something a little bit stronger. It's essentially like a liquor store, right? You can buy everything from beer to Everclear in that liquor store, depending on how how drunk do you want to get tonight? And that's essentially what a dispenser is, right? Where in these states that have decided to tax it, make money off of it, and recognize that, hey, this is an opportunity for us as a society to control it, make sure it's safe, all that, right? But when we look back at why, you asked the question, why can't we? It's because Richard Nixon didn't want people protesting the war. Richard Nixon didn't like the idea that people were protesting Vietnam Marijuana was something that a majority of these protesters had on them. And next thing you know, marijuana is a Schedule One narcotic and literally people's entire life have been ruined for having a single joint on them. Uh, and it's incredible to me that we live in one country, right? But if you cross the state line into Oklahoma with a car, you can buy weed. If you keep on going to Colorado, you can just walk in and buy weed. And if you bring any of that back to Texas, you're getting locked the hell up for God knows how long. And it's just incredible to me that um, all because Richard Nixon started a pandemic on, on, I mean, sorry, a moral panic, not a pandemic, uh, a panic around marijuana and that it kills brain cells. And, and that's an interesting one, too, where when you look at the, the moral panics, there's going to be a exaggerated fact. And, and the one to me with marijuana that, that uh, Nixon ran with was that it killed brain cells, right? Marijuana kills brain cells. And they used a study where they basically gave marijuana to monkeys and monitored, you know, their brain cells. And they said that this marijuana killed the monkeys' brain cells. What they actually did was pump nothing but marijuana smoke into a, into a, oxygen tank mask essentially so the monkey had no oxygen just straight marijuana coming into his system so yeah you know what happens when you suffocate scott your brain cells die so that is why that myth comes apart so yes there was a study done yes brain cells did die when there was a monkey getting high on marijuana but the brain cells died because they suffocated him with marijuana smoke or she i don't know if it was a female or male monkey but either way they, they, they take this tiny, and this is what happens with all moral panics. You take a tiny little fact. You take this one little nugget, tiny nugget of truth. And, and, the, and the reason I want to bring this up is because we're going to see a lot lately with Tucker Carlson has the exclusive rights with this January 6th footage, right? And he's going to show you snippets, you know, no audio, no nothing, just Tucker narrating the whole way, a couple little spots. And, and he's going to draw you to a conclusion that if you saw the entire video in its entirety, maybe you wouldn't have that conclusion or maybe it's, maybe it's half the conclusion, but either way, when you only show me a little bit, 
And then you keep talking about that little bit, that tiny little bit, and you exaggerate that tiny little bit of a 10-page study. You show me a two paragraphs of a 10-page study, but you really want me to focus on these two paragraphs. That's a problem. And that's where a lot of these moral panics come from. They'll cite that they did a study, but they won't show you the whole study. They'll only show you the part of the study that makes what they want to happen look like it's a problem. Well, you're, you're also you know, leaving out one very important point. You know, when we're talking about the war of drugs, Philip Morris is not making marijuana. Anheuser-Busch is not making marijuana. That's, that's really the big, you know, also the big key. You know, Philip Morris is, you know, multi-billion dollar company. And, and I don't know if you saw the John Oliver, you're talking about, you know, tobacco sales around the world. You know, they, you know, they were showing pictures of like a three or four year old kid sitting here smoking. I mean, it was just the craziest thing you've ever seen. But you don't have any billionaire companies manufacturing marijuana. So whenever we make it illegal, we're not stepping on any corporation's toes. Because we don't have a corporation making it. Now, if suddenly where you had a corporation that was going to be making it, ooh, uh, maybe we do want to you know have this profit. And this is you know this kind of stems back to you know our previous one of our previous episodes where we talked about fascism and um, how corporate and government are tied together. And this is where you know corporations support the government. Government supports corporations. And so this is why we're still selling cigarettes. This is why we're still, you know, we could afford to pay tobacco farmers more not to grow tobacco. We could afford to do that. We don't want to. Because then Philip Morris would be out of business. Can't do that. Okay, you know, and then the one reason why you're never going to see prohibition again of alcohol. Damn it, we don't, you know, Miller's going to go out of business. Adam has a bush course, going go out of business. Can't do that. So, you know, that's where you know. And, that, and that's where I want to talk about the other, uh, which drugs are considered to be illegal, which drugs are not. That's where you know you're full, they're full of crap. Because if they really wanted to target what was killing people, we'd knock this opioid problem out just like that. But we're not going to do that because those are the major pharmaceutical companies and they are making money hand over fist, even with fines. They are making money hand over fist you know, for selling all these opioids. We don't want to kill those profits for that corporation because they're the ones that are paying us you know, probably half to you know, three-fourths the money for some of these people's campaigns. So you know, we don't want to do that. No. Yeah. No, absolutely. They... That's the problem. They're funding the campaigns too. And and you mentioned the opioid epidemic. Right now, we're fighting the 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 border, right? The border's a big issue again coming up, as it is every election cycle. But the one they're worried about is fentanyl, right? Fentanyl coming across the border, getting mixed in. If you were really worried about fentanyl, you would allow free drug testing kits available to people who take drugs, right? If you're really worried about that and you're worried about if you're someone who had a cocaine addiction and you were afraid someone put fentanyl in it, you should allow that person to have a free testing kit. But at the end of the day, you don't really care about the fentanyl issue. You care about, I'm sorry, you don't really care about the actual issue. You care about 
making an issue out of it to where you can run on the fact that there's no border control. There's fentanyl coming across the border. Look how much fentanyl. And that's my favorite one that when they post pictures of like, look how much fentanyl we seize today. We need more border control. And, and my first thought was like, why you got it? Like, I don't, I don't get why you're saying this is a bad thing. It seems to me like the border control is working. They got the fentanyl, but. Oh, that's yeah. That's where Laura Bobert, you know, came in and she, uh, you know, one of her tweets, uh, and she's not going to win our award this week. I'm sorry to say, but um, she was talking about how you know horrible it was, you know, because look at how much they seized. And I was thinking the exact same thing. It's like, but we got it. And 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 notice how they tell you that, you know, they're bringing enough fentanyl across the border to kill every American. What was it, two or three times? How many people have actually died of fentanyl overdose? Yeah, it's. It's more than have sh- than should have, right? But it's Versus not how many a- how many have died from like say in a drunk driving accident? More, exactly. Yeah, it's and that's why I wanted to bring it up. You know, at the end of the day, and, and I think and now we've we've discussed enough of them. The, the question is, in today's day and age, how do you stop the moral panic? Because I think there was a time before the internet, before 24-7 news cycle, where these things would die out eventually, right? You know, even even the Red Scare, as as big as it was with with Senator McCarthy going at people, eventually he lost that battle, right? And he did eventually, was not 100% successful in his goal. And it went away. And... You know, nowadays it seems like every week, Scott, there's something new coming up, and I, I feel like a lot of it is directed rage or controlled rage from you know media outlets that essentially it's a way to keep their fan bases uh, or political bases engaged. You know, and, and to me, I feel like really the Republican Party specifically has used the moral panic as as an engagement method. You know, it's, it's there. I don't know. To me, it's just something to continually keep that base riled up because you don't want them to not show up for the midterms or not show up for the, the local school board elections, or there's, there's always something at stake. This is always the big moment. We're always fighting for something. And I, I don't know how as a society we combat that attitude. You know, how do we change the thought process of, this is how life has always been, right? We've all, we're going to have a little more technology now, but like, there's always been a bunch of idiots around doing stupid things. We've always been a society that will be subject to some sort of panic, but we, um, you know, don't need to have one every two weeks. I think there's a perfect storm that's happening right now at this point in history, and, and, and I'm hopeful that you know the future will produce some different results because what I think you have and. and, and Notice that when we had all the moral panic, or the, I don't know if it was a moral panic, but a panic over the vaccine and over all these stories that people would hear about the vaccine that had microbes so that they could track, you know, that I'm holding my iPhone that is literally tracking my every movement, but it's the microbes that I just injected into my arm, you know, for the vaccine. That's what's, that's how the government's watching. But what, what will they tell you? They'll tell you, do your research. And it's as a way of sitting there saying, here's, here's Dr. Fauci, who has been 
fighting, you know, fighting disease for 50 years. He, had, he was fighting disease. I mean, the guy's in his 80s and he's been serving in government since, you know, he was in his 30s. And he's going to tell us something of what, you know, the best knowledge that he knows. But then you're going to have somebody sit there and go, well, but my cousin Jethro, you know, he works at the stop and go in Cleveland, Texas. And he told me he heard this on YouTube. And that's going to be people's research. Because what I think is what's happened is you look at, you know, if you were to look at uh, demographics and you look at people who are most likely to be conservative, people who are most likely uh, to be into conspiracy theories, they are people who are my age or older. You're talking about people in their 50s, 60s, 70s on up. What I think and what I'm hoping is that when we're teaching kids in school right now, we're teaching them about using real academic sources in order to look up information. Because information is the way that you fight these moral panics. If you want to sit there and worry about CRT, the best way you can defend against that is for somebody to actually look up what is CRT. But like, oh, well, they're not doing that. And then that, that dissipates, right? But we have an older population who... I don't want to go on the internet. I'm afraid of the computer. My parents are, you know, they go on the computer maybe once a week and I don't even know if they know what they're doing. So what are they watching? Now, fortunately, my parents are watching MSNBC. They're not watching Fox. Thank God. But how many elderly parents are watching Fox and getting all their information from there? And they're not doing any research, so they're not getting any information. The hope is, and this is where I think the Republican Party knows this, is that they're fighting a demographic war they will not win. They cannot win. Because as the population gets younger, population gets more informed, population is not going to buy into that culture war crack. Not going to fight into that, you know, that panic. So what they're trying to do, and, and they are feeding their voters this stuff because what are they really about? They're really about changing the rules so that they can never be elected out of office. That's what they want. They're not going to tell you that because they know, oh, shoot, we can't, you know, but occasionally you hear it leak out. Like, uh, I know, um, I think you're, uh, we might mention CPAC later on. And I know uh, Trump made his speech and basically he just came out and said it. He says, you know, I ran 2016 to do this. If you put me back, they'll never be back in office again. That's a threat, folks. Believe it. When he tells you that, believe it. That's what he wants. And so, because they know that once the baby boomers die out, people who are internet savvy, who know, you know, what CRT really is, who know what socialism really is, who know what woke really means, they're not going to fall for that. And they're going to, they're going to vote the other way, but you know, they can't let that happen. Yeah. I mean, sadly, just, I, <laughs> yes, this is really kind of where I'm at with that one. I think, you know, we know, we know this is happening. I think I, I, 
I think the best thing that can happen for the Republican Party is enough infighting happens to where they break in a different direction. But, um, yeah, I, I, I'm kind of at a loss there just as to where we go from here. You know, I, th- I think we can we can introduce the these histories of moral panics. We can we can sit there and and, and the frustrating thing about it, right, is you can sit square faced with someone who truly believes that CRT is a problem, right? And you could say, hey, here's what CRT CRT is. And obviously we're not teaching that. And and they will be like, that's not true. That's fake news. They definitely are. My son's, te- my son's friends, teachers doing this, or it doesn't matter, right? When you are so invested in your own world, you're almost unwilling to see the truth. And it's, I mean, it's a, Sadly, it's something that we've seen played out in history before, right? And it's a known fact of you'll bury your head in the sand and, and ignore the signs that you were wrong if you've given so much into this narrative, into this thought process or this way of thinking. I mean, we look at, you know, the the moral panic of child sex trafficking, right? I mean, someone someone showed up at a pizzeria armed, locked and loaded, ready to save the kids because they were convinced that this pizza, this ping pong playing pizza place was a secret sex trafficking ring. I mean, people get caught up in these things and they're so susceptible to it and nothing changes. No one looks at themselves in the mirror. I mean, Fox News literally is Rupert Murdoch is putting quotes out right now, admitting all the lies that the, we, hey, we, we lied about the election. We lied about this. And by the way, stay tuned for Tucker Carlson, who's got the exclusive January 6th footage. I mean, it's just, it's outrageous. Because if all you ever do is apologize three years later after the effects of your of your lying happen, and and every time in these in these moral panic scenarios, to me, it seems like there's there's a fine somewhere down the road. But like, if you make three hundred million dollars off something, and I fine you ten million dollars. Okay, put it into my operating expenses. Now I made $290 million. Like at no point is there a corporate death penalty, you know? Give like and that's what scares me the most is there's just no accountability. We we put a big number fine out there, but we don't ever care to mention how much they actually made in compared to that big number fine. I I think the best chance we have is um you know, we'll see what happens with Alex Jones. The CEO is like more than a billion dollars in restitution and fines to the families he defamed from Sandy Hook. We'll see what happens there. But even then, like he's far enough right that the Republican Party can disown him. And, and you know, he was Trump's guy until when he wasn't. But a majority of Republicans can, Republicans can distance, them, distance themselves from Alex Jones. If uh, one of the pharmaceutical companies or if the NRA you know, someone who donated to every single Republican campaign, if they got hit with something like that, that's when I think you'd start to see people running from them and we'd start to see some change on these things. But until we go after those guys with the big money and, you know, you mentioned earlier, why are some drugs legal and some aren't? It's because they have enough money to pay for lobbyists to make sure that they're legal. And until we make sure that those people don't have that money anymore, until you hit them with big enough fines and big enough penalties and enough jail time to make it not worth it, it's going to keep happening. Well, I know we're getting into, uh, we're coming up on our 
two favorite segments of the week, at least you know, for our fans, but I wanted to tell this little story because you mentioned child tra- trafficking and that was my, uh, that was another one that hit me. I remember having an argument with uh, a family member and I'm not going to go into too much, you know, details to who they are because, you know, you never know who's listening, right? And he was utterly convinced that child trafficking was this huge deal. In fact, you know, it got to the point where, and I remember when the child trafficking thing came to a head that they were actually saying that you didn't want your children to wear a mask because then they couldn't scream when they were being abducted in like the H-E-B parking lot. I'm like, who in the hell is abducting children in the H-E-B parking lot? And so I asked him, I said, do you know anybody who's been trafficked? He said, no. I said, do you know anybody? No, no, this is an actual family member. Um, we were, uh, we were speculating off here, folks, for those of y'all didn't know about who it might be. It was, no, it was a family, it was a family member. And I was like, dude, did you speculate? Um, I said, do you know anybody that knows anybody that's been trafficked? Like, have you ever heard any stories about specific people who have been trafficked? And actually what he did is he came up with a story about something that happened to him as a kid. And I can't, I can't refute that. I mean, I'm not going to sit there and tell somebody, no, this didn't happen to you. But I knew what it was, is it was a defense mechanism that basically, you got me. But I don't want to admit that you got me. So, and, and what they do, and this, is what, and this is what they do, and this is the same thing as drugs, and it's the same thing as anything else. There's a kernel of truth to these things. Are there children that are trafficked? Absolutely. Yes, there are. But, you know, we took, this is how ridiculous it got. One of the videos we we had at school this year that we had to watch was a child trafficking video. It's like if a child is being trafficked, the trafficker is not going to send them to school. Because you've got, what, a hundred plus adults in there that any of them could stop that in a minute. I mean, you've got police in these schools. You know, we, we could call, you know, school district police. We can call Houston police. We can call, you know, whatever, Pasadena police. We can call them in a minute. So why are we learning about child trafficking and looking for signs of a child's being trafficked? It's like, well, the sign would be that they aren't there anymore. That would be the sign. So these things actually do happen, Yes. So Tim and I are not going to get on here and say, like, there's no such thing as child trafficking. No, there is. But who is being trafficked? It's not middle-class white-bred America. They're not the ones being trafficked. It's people who are in more desperate situations. People that are probably, you know, maybe, you know, have moved to this country recently. Don't, you know, speak the language. Don't know the customs. There are people who are extremely poor, who are looking for any way out of a, a sad situation. Those are the peoples being trafficked, not middle-class white-bred America. So when somebody middle-class white-bred, oh, we got to worry about this child trafficking. We're, they're doing this to our children. It's like, no, they're not. Stop it. 
but you, yeah, you're right. You can't tell them these things because they'll they're just too defensive. There's there's so many people out there who are like millions of millions of children are being trafficked every year. Like I'm if 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 millions of children were being trafficked every year, don't you think we'd notice? Like, don't you think you personally, at those odds, millions every year, the odds are you'd know somebody who has been a victim of trafficking. At least you'd have a friend of a friend. Like, the odds are that you would have someone within that circle. And I, I think you could go to majority of people out there and say, is there anyone within a, a friend of your friend who's been a victim of child trafficking? And I, I think the answer is no. Does it mean that doesn't happen? Absolutely not. It does not mean that doesn't happen. But it, it what it does mean is that we don't have a, a pandemic of it or an epidemic of it breaking out in America to the proportions that we're spending that money, right? There are other ways that we could spend that money and there are other things that we could do with that time it takes to have you look at a child trafficking video. Instead, maybe we... We watch a video on signs of emotional distress. Maybe we, we, we invest a little bit more in just children's well-being. How are things at home, right? There are other – I'm not saying you don't need to watch some videos about kids' behavior, right? But maybe it's we're looking for other things instead of trafficking, right? Let's take that time and let's invest it in how to make our kids as good as possible. If you're seeing some of these signs in our kids, let one of our counselors know and maybe we'll book a session for some extra time. That – you know, that would be appropriate, but it's, it's, um, it's not the way that we go, but Scott, you, you teased it a little earlier. We're getting, we're getting into that segment of the week, the favoritist person, someone you just love with. No, we're just kidding. It's the scumbag of the week. And, and Scott, you were texting me earlier. You and I were texting. I'm actually going to let you go first. Cause I'm, I'm going to call a little Omaha here. Oh, because audible. we are going to call it audible because since you and I last spoke, you know, in the words of Bob Dylan, the times they are changing. I think and, I may know uh, where you're going here, but uh, I, I'm going to we'll let you see. go. I'll let you go there. But um, no, I'm going to let you start it off because I want to surprise you and go second here. Um, um, so go I, I'm going to go with uh, the Texas GOP is going to be my scumbag for the week which there's actually an additional story that I will bring up here in a minute. I'm going to let Tim, you know, I'm going to let Tim go. Cause I think I, I have a feeling this is the direction he's going. Um, but the Texas GOP. So there is a, a U.S. representative from Texas. His name is Tony Gonzalez. No, he's not that Tony Gonzalez. Uh, he's not the one that, you know, you know leads all tight ends ever, ever in receptions. He's different Tony Gonzalez. Gonzalez with an S. Um, they have voted to censure him. Now, for those of y'all that, you know, haven't taken government or, you know, maybe you've slept since then and you, since you took a government class, a censure is basically um, like Joseph McCarthy was censured after all of his, you know, shenanigans. Basically, this is, in many cases, it's not enough, nothing official is happening to you. It's just the party saying you've done something wrong or the government body, so the House of Representatives, the Senate, whatever. It's a it's a very formal slap on the wrist. Yes. So what are they slapping Tony Gonzalez for? Did he lie? Does he go by a different name? Maybe is he wanted for uh, 
for crimes in Brazil. Oh, wait a minute. No, no, that's not him. That's, that's another guy. Sorry. No, what Tony Gonzalez did is he voted against their basic anti-woke agenda. He voted against, you know, basically punishing people for uh, gender affirming, um, affirming language. He, he voted against these things. And so they have chosen to censure him. Now, do I care what the GOP does? Maybe not, you know, particularly, but if you're going to look at the Democratic side, you know, the two Democratic politicians who have come under the most fire in the last, you know, few years have been Joe Manchin and uh, Kirsten Sinema because they have not voted the Democratic way you know, enough times in the Senate for, you know, the Senate and the House both to agree on changes that, you know, I think most Americans think need to happen. Now, has the Democratic Party censured those two? No. What are uh, are we just sitting idly by and, and hoping for the best? No. We we've done, uh, and I say we, people who tend to vote Democratic, have looked at it as we're going to primary them, we're going to get them out, and I think you know the next time you know that that there's a senator from West Virginia, it will not be Joe Manchin. I don't know who it will be. might end up being a Republican, but I don't think it's going to be Joe Manchin. And the next time somebody comes in from Arizona, it will not be Kirsten Sinema. Um, again, don't know who it will be, but it will be somebody else. Did we sit there and say that they've done something terribly wrong? No. They just haven't voted the way we wanted them to. It happens. But what you want, and, and the way this government has to work, and this is why I do care about this, is that people have to vote their conscience or they have to vote the way the majority of their representatives want them to vote one or the other. It shouldn't be parties voting this way. You shall vote this way. No, if you think the party's wrong, you vote against the party. It's the way these things work. And if it worked more often like that, then I think we would more likely have a government that we would be proud of than having Republicans here, Democrats here. I think somewhere in a corner, Aaron Sorkin is just sitting there clapping for Tony Gonzalez, right? Because that's that's Aaron Sorkin's dream world of politics, right? Where you vote for your conscience, you vote for your party. Uh, I'm sorry, you vote for your your district. You don't necessarily have to listen to your party, and there is some value in the in the back and forth of partisan or bipartisan cooperation. We and you're right. We don't have that in today's government at all. But that, to me, is is such a that's the West Wing brain thought process. I feel like where that's what everybody wants is both both sides to sit down and for both you know the Democrats to get theirs, Republicans to get theirs, and let's get this bill passed. And we can work together. It doesn't matter who's president. It doesn't matter who has control of the House and Senate. We're here to help the people. Uh, and you're right. That's how it should be. And you've got to remember the West Wing was a television show and it was not real. And that's not how real life works. And it's sad that, you know, you live in a world where you're going to censure someone who essentially spoke his mind because what is it embarrassing to you? Is it, you know, I, you know, what, why is the, why, what is the reasoning behind doing that is, is my question. You know, if, if, if his district didn't like that vote, they'll vote him out. If they did like it, 
they'll keep him in. But other than are you you know embarrassed that he told you no? It's it's a public shaming is what it is. It's a way for them to say you went against us on this one, and we're going to go out there and we're going to say that we told you not to do it, and you did it anyway, and you're a bad boy. I mean, that's really all that it is to me, and um, it's it's a waste of time. But again, it's 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 that keeping yourself in the cycle, keeping keeping his name going in a way that. Come come election time, when you run somebody else in the primary, you heard that this guy got censured. And if you don't really know what it means to be censured, you might think it's a really, really bad thing. All right. So, Tim, I think I could know where you're going, but you go ahead and serve it on up. So, Scott, when you and I talked earlier in the week, I, I had a pretty good scumbag lined, ready to go. We were talking about moral panics. We had someone who was attacking the school district. um, Okay, here we go. But then, you know, Texas had to have a renegade cowboy dumbass. And you mentioned the Texas state GOP. Um, Republican state Senator Brian Slayton decided to put out Texas which is the Texas Independent Referendum Act, and he's going to let Texans vote if we should be our own country. And I, I, I'm i so over this. Like, I really, I am really over this. Like, the idea that you're going to try and, and put this out to vote, and the sad part is, Scott, it's going to get, like, 30, 35% of people will vote in favor of it. And like, God forbid it actually passes because there's enough dumbasses out there who vote for something like this, who honest to God think that like Texas would be a thriving country on its own. Like maybe, maybe not. Like we use quite a bit of government help for things. We have government funded roads and, and bridges and it's, it's very dangerous, especially considering people are already pissed how much they pay in property taxes. They're trying to lower the property taxes, which, hey, I'd be great with that if I got a little more money back. But how are you going to, with one one hand, tell me we're going to work to, to lower your, your taxes? And then on the other hand, we're going to break away from daddy and we're going to strike it out on our own. And we don't want daddy's money anymore. How are we not going to pay more taxes? If we if we leave the United States of America, in what world are we not forking the Texas government over even more money? And I, I'd be interested in the population numbers in Texas should they become their own country. I, I have to think anyone who's not a Republican's out of here. Like it, it's one thing to live in a state where the state government is a problem, but it's another thing to live in like a, a, a country a, like a fascist dictator country where you've declared yourself free. I mean, it's the, it's the, I don't want to live in the Confederacy, right? I mean, you're essentially, you're bringing back the Confederacy. Here we go. Rebs like, come on. So Brian Slayton is, is my scumbag of the week. And I think what makes it frustrating, Scott, is he knows he's a scumbag as he did it. Like, I think he like, had left a, slay, a trail of slime right behind him as he walked up and, and proposed that bill for vote because he knew what he was doing when he did it, and he just wanted 
to be able to say that I was the guy, you know, guns up, pow, pow, pow. I'm the one who said, Texas, let's go. With an absolute smile on his face the whole time, I am sure. Uh, and I knew that's the direction you were going. And so I, I was going to, I was going to hold off and let you tee that up. Cause I, I knew you were going. There. Let me give everybody as I, again, I know Tim knows this, but I'm going to give everybody all our listeners a lesson because you know, the one thing they'll tell you that people who are, who think they know things. Well, Texas had its own treaty with the United States that says that we were able to get out. Yes, they did. But, but, the moment that they seceded from the Union and they re-entered the Union, that treaty was null and void because they had to re-enter the Union the same way as the other Confederate states, former Confederate states, re-entered the Union. So this whole idea that we can do this, you know, Texas's version of Brexit, Texit, I guess is what they'll call it. No, not legally, but, but let me... Just make it, you know, throw a few things out there because you mentioned some things, but let's say you have Social Security. Where's that coming from? Let's say you have Medicare. Where's that coming from? You know, let's say that you work on a military base. Is that military base going to stay in Texas when it's you know part of the U.S. Army or U.S. Navy or Air Force? NASA. So from Clear Lake, can NASA afford to stay in Texas if we're our own country. Now, I guess, you know, the the one good thing you can sit there and say is at least we have our own electrical grid, but we've seen how well that works lately. So this is, yeah, you're right. This is stupid. So basically here's what happens. Just, you know, throw a what if out there. If it were somehow to get a majority and Greg Abbott were to sign it, we don't become our own country. No, no, that's not happens. It goes to a public referendum. It gets on the ballot. So you get your say as to whether or not Texas can be its own individual country. And I love this because and, and you brought up the whole idea of property taxes and whatnot. This, because this is a perfect example. Greg Abbott is going to brag to you, I guarantee it, how he's cut state taxes. Guarantee it. He's going to he's going to brag to you about how he's done that. But see, here's the funny thing. The cost of educating students has not gone down. It doesn't go down. It's going to go up. And so when you charge more money per student and when you have more students, that means you need more money. And if the state of Texas, Austin, is going to take less money, then that means the local districts have to take more money. And the government, and if you were to exit from the United States, it's going to be the exact same thing. I don't care who's got their money, who's got their hand in my pocket. Somebody's got their hand in my pocket. They're taking money out. It doesn't really matter whether it's the county, whether it's the school district, whether it's the city, whether it's the state, whether it's the federal government. That money's gone. You don't have it anymore. So if you're going to sit there and brag, well, then Washington's not going to take our money anymore. Okay. Who's going to? Well, now it's going to be Austin. They're going to take your money. And if Austin doesn't take your money, now it's going to be the local, you know, it's going to be Harris County. It's going to be Tarrant County. It's going to be whatever county you live in. And if it isn't, then it's going to be the school district. It's going to be the city. You know, 
you were talking about the whole fact of, uh, I remember last week you were talking about, you know, why are we pledging allegiance to a flag? Texas is the only state where you actually pledge allegiance to the Texas flag. Uh, in addition to the, the pledge of allegiance of the United States. And we do that in school every day. And I'm just waiting for the day. I pledge allegiance to the old township of Pasadena. I pledge allegiance to the, oh my God, or, you know, whatever the words would be. Because it's just ridiculous. Your money is going to be taken, whether it's Washington, Austin, Houston, Fort Worth, Dallas, whatever. Your money, it, it, government services cost money. Somebody's taking it. So you're not going to get be any better off if it was just Texas than if you were all the United States. And in fact, I, I think we could very easily argue and agree that you'd be, we would be worse off um, if, if Texas left the United States. There would be no help, no nothing if things went wrong. At least now when the power grid goes wrong, right, like there is some federal help if we really, really needed it. If a hurricane comes through and wrecks the coast, FEMA's here to help if and when that we need it. When, when things like that happen and you are not part of the United States of America, are you going to come up with your own FEMA? Are you going to be you going to have TEMA in case of a hurricane? Are you going to have, you know, your own viral research and technology? I mean, there's, I guarantee you, if you spent 10 minutes with this guy, you could very easily see that he has no idea. He's done no thought, into any of the repercussions of it and much to say the same as brexit right they didn't they didn't think that shit through and look where they are now here we are with this guy he even called it texit scumbag of the week that's Absolutely. it you earned it really texas in general this week is a, a, a universal scumbag the texas gop between myself and scott um they take the cake but uh man what a what a state that we live in, Scott. Yes, and and, and, and uh, you know you mentioned the electrical grid. You know, the electrical grid is the perfect example. We basically have our own, and look how well that's worked. And, and I, yeah. I think that's that's what you need to know. Okay, so now you know we started this feature last week. We had a math with Marge, you know, kind of uh, thing going last week. So uh, I'll I'll send this back to Tim. Uh, do you have a funny tweet of the week? I do. Um, let's see, which one do we want to go for? I, I sent you a few throughout the week. Uh, let's, let's, let's visit, let's visit old Colorado on the keyboard of Lauren Boebert. I'm tired of hearing about ESG and DEI. I'm tired of our completely bloated and overfunded three letter agencies. The only three letters our founders thought necessary for USA, yes. Like, this is a this is a congressperson. This is someone that we feel should be on committee leading our government, and and this is this is the tweets that we get. This is, uh, I mean, and it's just a a little sprinkle into the world of Lauren Boebert, but obviously she's worried about the FBI. She's worried about she's worried about January sixth. They all are. And now they're going to start crying about the FBI, these three-letter agencies. Just come on. I think, you know, and, and 
unfortunately, you know, we're, we're a audio medium here, folks, you know, we, we, you know, we, we don't have access to pictures because, you know, the picture in this case, it, it, it tells about it, it, it just paints a perfect picture. She was at, said this at CPAC. Okay. She said this in front of, I'll just say tens of people, not hundreds, tens, because that thing was, I mean, it, it was like, you know, it was like those C-SPAN videos where they show how many people, how many people showed up to a subcommittee hearing and you see like four people in the audience. It, it was almost that bad. The woman was wearing like a prom dress to this thing. And it, how about it was this just, one? How about this? This is Lauren Boebert classic, Scott. Funny how after all the years of experts studying climate change, no one has found a better solution than just taxing everyone into oblivion. I don't know. I feel like we found like 15, 15 solutions that you're just completely ignoring because they cost a little bit of money to fund. Well, and, and we, we, we see this, you know, kind of rhetoric, you know, all the time, you know, the, the, the late uh, Rush Limbaugh, you know, said in his first book, you know, the way I think it's the way things ought to be that the federal government has never successfully done anything. And you're like, uh, and you just, you just rattle off all the successful things that the federal government has done. And it's the same kind of thing. And, and Lauren Bover. Okay. So for, for those of y'all that, um, just, a, you know, a few things about her. Number one, I think she passed the GED on her own the third time. I mean, Maybe. she has a GED. Like she definitely she, has has well, it. She, she does have a GED, but there's some speculation that maybe you know we fudged the scores a little bit to give it to her. I, I, you know, okay. Um, her her husband, who was then her boyfriend, you know, got arrested for exposing himself to minors at a bowling alley. Of course, I mean, I guess you know that doesn't really necessarily mean she's a scumbag. I guess you know, but. You know, when we're complaining about other people, you know, she's the one that took, you know, Christmas photos with the entire family, all, everybody wearing a gun. I mean, we're just, she's just, she's, she's a performance artist is what I like to call her. Um, another one I think you sent is there's a guy that, you know, that sends out uh, a tweet every day that this is the worst, you know, that, you know, today is this, this day and just throwing you Joe Biden's the worst president ever. And you're like, yeah, real quick too, Scott, we forgot to mention one important thing for Lauren Boebert. She's going to be a grandma. Her 18 year old son knocked up his girlfriend. It's a good thing they have those those good Christian values that she preaches so much. Those good family values that are so near and dear to her heart. But yes, Joe Biden as the worst president, as you're saying, is I, I don't care how much you hate Joe Biden. There have been. 46 presidents now in the United or 46 yes. presidents of the United States. And you're going to tell me in a world where Andrew Johnson was one of them in a world where Andrew Jackson was one of them in a world where Richard Nixon was a president. You're going to tell me, I don't care how much you hate Joe Biden, that he is worse at his job than all of those men were. No or way. Calvin Coolidge no. or you know, Herbert Hoover or you know Herbert Hoover, absolutely. Um William Hardy Henry, William Henry Harrison, you know, we we could yeah, you could go back. It and it's hyperbole and it's just it's 
It's stupid. Instead of sitting there saying, I disagree with the president because he's doing X, Y, Z. We're going to sit there and say, well, he's the worst because, you know, so we're going to blame inflation on him, even though it's a worldwide thing. Uh, we're going to ignore the fact that the last president, quite literally, I don't know if I, I can say he is 100% responsible for over a million people being dead, but he, he's one of the chief suspects. I mean, we got we got to be honest. And, you know, the thing is, is that, you know, it, when was the last time this happened? This was, you know, we're talking about the Spanish flu. So in over a hundred years, more Americans died from COVID than died in all the world wars combined, just Americans. Throw on Vietnam, throw on Korea. And so and he's in and so this last president throws us deep into you know recession to where we're gonna have to spend money to get out of it. And all of a sudden, we're going to sit there and say, that's Joe Biden's fault. Really? Um, no, I don't. But, you know, yeah, you're right. We could go back in time um, and find any president that we want to uh, and highlight how just much of a buffoon they were. And, and it would be your know, comparison. I think... You know, the one I think I remember, uh, Zachary Taylor is the one that people compared Trump to uh, in terms of like a historical uh, historical line, you know, what kind of experience they brought into the, you know, uh, into the job and things like that. But it's just crazy. You know, is Joe Biden my favorite? No. If I had my pick of who I wanted to be president of the United States right now, would he be mine? No. And I, I know, you know he's not Tim's either. But. He's certainly not the worst. No, he's not. The, he's 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 yellow mustard on a hot dog, right? Like, would you rather have the Dijon, a little bit of the deli mustard? Yeah, absolutely. Are you gonna eat it dry? No. Give me the give me the yellow. That's what we got. You know, it'll, it'll go down. It's not gonna suck. It's still a hot dog with mustard on it. But, uh, you know, it's not the gourmet dog that we're hoping to have. Speaking of gourmet dogs, though, uh, time to take a little little hot dog break here as as Scott and I are uh, finishing up on part one. And then we'll uh, be back with some interesting drafts, some combine talk. We'll uh, get into some of the famous combine risers and some guys who have made a career off the combine. But. Scott, real quick, before we step away for part one, where can the people find you? Um, I'm on the Twitter at sbarzilla. Um, I'm also uh, uh, one of the writers for Battle Red Blog um, on your Houston Texans and write a, still write occasional uh, pieces myself at theholofameindex.com. I'm on Twitter as well, Tim underscore Costello10. We appreciate everyone who tuned in this week. We will be back tomorrow for part two. Thank you for tuning in to the Stat Book and making Scott and I a part of your week. I wanted to recognize that our intro song is called Energetic Indie Rock by Alex Grohl, and this outro music is Good Vibe by Twisterium. We appreciate everyone who tunes in each and every week and is part of the Snaphook movement. 
look forward to seeing you next week on the Snapbook.